Hello and, and welcome, welcome to episode number 20 of our podcast. My name is Elliot Greenman. My name is Alexis Enel. And uh, this week, uh -huh. we dealt with some more of the advertising standard agency conditions that osteopaths are allowed or to say that they can treat. And we dealt with some uh, minor digestive uh, issues. And uh, we talked a bit, uh, and a bit more about fibromyalgia, which is a very interesting subject. We talked about frozen shoulder and some epicondylitis or elbow problem, golfer or tennis. And uh, we talked about headaches as well and joint pain and uh, knee and hip pain and osteoarthritis and uh, and chronic back pain. So I think we delve a bit more into some interesting uh, topics today. And mm -hmm. um, I think the fibromyalgia part of it is a bit um, maybe challenging for some people the, talking about the expectation fulfillment theory of dream and talking about fibromyalgia being a, a, a sleep disorder to try to open us up to a possibility of getting better basically and mm -hmm. um it's a yeah well you'll see if you manage to uh, stay awake with all those information basically yeah and As always, like, share, comment, or uh, or all three, and uh, <laughs> and we hope you enjoy uh, this episode. Perambulations in Franglais. So we talk about more con more medical conditions. That you are allowed to advertise that you can treat. That's it. So last week we did arthritic pain, yeah. circulatory problems, yeah. and cramp. Yeah. Uh, next one on the list yeah. is D for digestion problems. Digestion problems. Um. Yeah, well, osteopathy is one branch of osteopathy and a lot of techniques and approaches are to do with visceral osteopathy. So we tend to address organs and their attachments, basically. Um, there's an awful lot of what we talked a bit about last week about those viscerosomatic reflexes. So part of the lateral horn of the uh, spinal cord receive the innervation of the blood supply. Okay. What do you mean by lateral horn? So there's an anterior and a posterior one which receives the sensory and the motor input and output for muscles and different things. But there's a middle part of the spinal cord which receives the nervous supply to the blood supply. Okay. Oh, yeah. So that's another of the bit part. Okay. And we look at certain uh, digestive issues, like maybe IBS would be one of the interesting uh, ones, really. And with osteopathy and the uh, approach we have, we can change a bit the uh, perception we have and the feedback we have from our gut, basically. So, as you know, 
when you're about to maybe speak in public, for example, you've got a little butterfly in your stomach, type thing. Or if you're about to jump from a building and base jump from a building, the sensation it gives you in your stomach is quite interesting. So some people love it and some people want to vomit and crawl on the floor, basically. So we've got that flight and fright response and rest and digest response, which tends to take the blood away from your gut or bring it into your gut, basically, okay? And that's what osteopaths tend to work with, in a way, okay? And we work with attachment. So the liver, for example, is attached on different points. And we can maybe work on the interaction between the diaphragm and the liver, for example. Or, and the way the gallbladder works, for example, and how it releases. So, some people would have duodenal ulcer or irritation of their duodenum, which is the part next to the stomach, which receives an awful lot of the acid from the stomach. But the, the, that acid needs to be neutralized by the bile salts. And if the two are nicely releasing in a synchronous fashion, the, part of the bowel doesn't get too irritated basically and inflamed as well as the pancreatic enzymes maybe possibly working in an adequate pH basically so if it's too acidic uh, the lipase the protease and the different amylase and the different enzyme for sugars and and proteins and lipids that the, the pancreas secretes are very pH sensitive. So if it's too acidic or too alkaline, too acidic from the stomach content or too alkaline from the uh, gallbladder juice, juices, basically, or bile juices, bile, well, the pancreatic enzyme don't work very well. So therefore, your digestive process is a bit hindered and therefore you can be a bit bloated or you can cramp a bit or it can be a bit irritable and things. So we tend to look at certain dysfunctions, mechanical dysfunction and, and blood supply dysfunction and relationship between organs and musculoskeletal organs and the diaphragm and the breathing. And we talked about positive and negative partial pressures between your chest and your abdomen. We talk about different bits and bobs. So we can then we try to influence a bit the way people's digestive system functions basically. Okay? By directly manipulating organs or by working on the blood supply of the organ or by working on the interactions that organ is having with the musculoskeletal system. So there's couple of interesting organs which are retroperitoneal. So they're outside your abdominal cavity. They're glab wrapped in front of your back. And they have access to the diaphragm and they have access to your hip flexor. They have access to the quadratus lumborum. They have access to different parts, really. And then we can work with that a bit. So it's quite an interesting realm of work, really. And um, I, I tend to work quite a lot with that because it's Quite, it, it's that extra uh, embryological layer, that endoderm part of it. Yes, of course, there's mesoderm and there's ectoderm part of it in a way, but it's a great realm. And a lot of people have got minor digestive issues nowadays, really. And 
And then we could uh, look at a bit the polyvagal theory a bit as well with that. And so the vagus innervation and the cardiopulmonary part of it and the digestive part of it and how you're so, how conducive you feel the social interaction with the person in front of you is basically in light of the, the activation of their uh, cranial nerve basically so their eyes their facial expression the tone of their voice the position of their shoulders those kind of things really and that's going to influence your gut as well at times basically so this so we can open up people to quite a lot of interesting concept really and breathing exercise again all the rest is a lot of interesting yoga that can be done like that there's lots of different ways of doing so we are no i'm not a nutritionist but a lot of people tend to go on the diet route and we have to be a bit careful because whatever the diet is if your stomach and your gallbladder don't eh, uh, empty in a synchronous fashion whatever food you're going to put in is not going to be digested properly and you're not going to get the a proper type nutrition from that really if you got you know like ulcerative colitis which is not a minor digestive issue but it's like really quite an extreme inflammatory uh, process your gut is so inflamed that you're actually maybe lacking b12 vitamin because the terminal ileum which is the last part of the small intestine before it goes into the large intestine is actually reabsorbing the whole uh, b12 vitamin and if it's really inflamed it's not going to be able to do that because it's <laughs> too inflamed basically so Yeah, B12 is quite a lot of things because it's castle intrinsic factor which is secreted by your stomach and it's wrapping the B12. So sometimes if you got too or not enough acid or too much acid or too much irritation of your stomach, you don't have enough castle intrinsic factor and you end up digesting the B12 vitamin. Anyway, so there's quite a lot of interesting things and B12 is going to affect oh, the blood, the sensory terminal end of your fingers and your toes really so you're going to have like ting the first type of symptom you tend to have is like tingling in your fingers and your so you could think oh my, maybe the nerve in my neck is actually uh, irritated but actually it's your stomach who's not producing enough because it's quite irritated or it's your terminal ileum who's a bit irritated and it doesn't absorb uh, properly the B12 vitamin really so yeah there's a wealth of thing it's quite it's not straightforward to talk about that there's anatomical relationships there's blood supply there's inflammation there's stress there's diet there's an awful lot so but the framework we use is actually helping people to make a bit of sense about all that and we can directly influencing and inhibit and because it's smooth muscles and this compared to striated muscles the musculoskeletal muscles the gut has got muscles so there's longitudinal ones there's circular ones and there's different techniques where we can inhibit those things to diminish cramping and all sorts of things really so yeah. it's it's an interesting part of osteopathy basically and it for a bit of a, I don't really like the term, but for a bit of a holistic approach, the visceral part is really quite an important, important thing, basically. 
Do many people come to you and say, Alexia, I've got digestion problems or I've got IBS or stuff like that? Or is it generally that that is a add-on condition yeah. Yeah. that they've yeah, got? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So a uh, few, few and far between people come with a primary complaint of having a digestive problem. But the whole thing, when they have musculoskeletal problems, like your low back or your mid-back or postural thing or whatever, in their history, a lot of them have got maybe possible digestive thing, intolerances, or they're celiac, or, you know, all the gluten story and all those kind of stuff. So they've got a little bit of a dysfunction of the gut, basically. Mm. So it's quite, with stress as well. So it's quite a good indicator of those things, really, yeah. And we try to make sense of all that with, of course, medical tests and things, and allergy tests and all sorts, really. I don't do that, but they can do it somewhere else really. I guess sometimes they'll get that done by a doctor or something. By and a then... doctor, by yeah, a nutritionist mm. and all those kind of things. It's really, you know, there's quite a lot of things there. Uh, next one on the list is fibromyalgia. Okay, it's fibromyalgia. Whew, that's um, a bit of um, interesting uh, condition because it's um, um, that post-viral symptoms, that ME, that uh, fibromyalgia, and people don't like to maybe mix all those things, but um, we have a generalized ache and pain, we've got a fatigue, we've got a lack of motivation, we've got a withdrawal from everyday activity, maybe job, hobbies, circle of friends, people are uh, really poorly, and 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 strangely, um, we've been looking at a lot of uh, metabolic problems with uh, uh, mitochondrial issues, with the Krebs cycle, and certain enzymes missing, all those kind of things, and they might be um, therapeutical things down that way. There's a lot of uh, people, so, uh, unfortunate, well, unfortunately or fortunately, I'm not too sure, a lot of people suffering from ME or fibromyalgia or and post-viral syndrome tend to really think that nobody understands what's happening to them and nobody can help them. And they are sure it's in their body and it's not in their mind. So, and that's really where... Well, a lot of them have not really heard about the expectation fulfillment theory of dream and the whole dopamine and serotonin and endorphins, the whole certain limitations that need to be there a bit really. So um, I think the, from my point of view, a lot of it is a sleep disorder in a way. And, and um, a lot of people with uh, those conditions tend to indulge in sleep quite a lot. They sleep a lot, basically, um, because they're tired. Or, actually, they are not very motivated. I think it's a better way of doing it. Really. Or a combination of the two. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I think it's um, when you sleep 14 hours, you, you can't really be tired. 
if you sleep three hours, you can be tired. But, but if, I know if you sleep 14 hours, you're actually, you lack motivation. And that's what prevents you from actually going about. When you don't have enough dopamine, you, you tend to really, um, you tend to not really, you've already done your day, basically. So they actually sap. So the REM part of the sleep, the dream generating part of that the sleep is actually sapping the level of the the amount of dopamine people have basically okay and the more unfulfilled expectation you have in a day the more you have to dream in order to clean the slate but the more you have to dream the more it saps your motivation because that's what dopamine does basically okay and therefore when you get up in the morning after having really dreamt an awful lot well you're all, you're a bit picky in a way so you can think you're tired but actually you you can't really be asked in a way because you you've got that lethargy a little bit okay because you've been actually busy <laughs> Because whether you dream or you actually do it for real, it's exactly the same thing for your brain, basically. So they've actually done their day already. Um, yeah, so... There's a difficult ov ov obviously, one. Yeah. Obviously, there's that aspect to it. But yeah, then yeah. The, the other aspect of that, that, um, that same, uh, I guess, phenomenon that you've described, yeah. dreaming a lot to yeah. uh, get our expectations fulfilled, uh -huh. which is a great theory. Um, uh And obviously, very, very scientifically backed. But surely that means that the REM sleep is taking away from deep sleep. Yeah. And so, whilst they may not be tired as such, yeah. you said, you know, fibromyalgia or ME yeah. or post viral yeah. syndrome, they all say that they feel it in the body. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, and it's a very physical thing, mm -hmm. which experience. as experience, which as you always say, you know, it's never just. It's never just body it's, mm -hmm. and never just mind, mm -hmm. and we should stop separating the two. Mm -hmm. um, but surely that means that in some ways they are tired as well as not motivated, or they are fatigued and because their body isn't getting maybe the deep sleep it needs to repair certain areas or do certain things. Mm -hmm. so, and yeah, I, yeah. I guess, obviously, if people, it it's common for people to sleep over 12 hours with these kind of conditions, mm -hmm. isn't it? And I guess if they are doing that, then they probably are getting the amount of deep sleep that they, or slow wave sleep or whatever mm -hmm. that, that they need. But mm -hmm. I'm sure it can be a case that obviously they are fatigued mm -hmm. as well as being, mm -hmm. as you say, can't, can't be asked. And, but I said, yeah. It's not can't be asked. Yeah. But it's dopamine. It's dopamine really. So dopamine is motivation basically, okay? It's your intention. So the plan because you've withdrawn away from your job and your friends and your hobbies, because you're aching, so the whole stuff, the myalgia part of it the ache in the muscle is a definitely to do with initially the lack of repair. So often people who have fibromyalgia were really active people. Actually, they are a bit too active people. They tend to have an awful lot of things. They are really involved in their jobs. They've got loads of social um, commitments. They uh, play sport, all those kind of stuff. They are really high, high functioning people basically okay and all of a sudden they've got an injury or a virus or a bug or whatever and it completely saps their their routine 
and the need they thought they were fulfilling by actually being social completely goes away and because that need is gone they have to dream about the whole lot to be able to actually function and it takes a lot away the slow wave sleep which is you, you talk about which actually doesn't help them to repair their body so they tend to ache even more which makes them think that they have to stop maybe uh, their uh, the sport they're doing because they're aching so much so it must be the sport they're playing that is actually causing the whole lot so they withdraw away from that but the sport that they were playing was actually helping them to deal with their stress or and meeting other people or and being competent or and the control they had all those kind of stuff and therefore they have to dream a bit more about those kind of stuff because they've not actually acted it in the world and therefore they get a bit squished more their slow wave sleep and they still have to get up in the morning and things like that until they can't actually even they end up being having time of work and once they start to have time of work the whole thing tends to spiral they can start to indulge into sleep and the more they indulge into sleep the more achy they are and the more le the least motivated they are the least they have fulfilled the whole lot the more they compare their life now to the life they had before and, and, the, and uh, it's a big 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 um, a vicious cycle basically so it's it's I think it's a difficult uh, thing because the experience people have with those uh, things is really in their body, basically. And actually, the, it's a, a typical mind-body or dualist or monist. So mind and body together is the two you have to tackle, basically. And it's... Well, it's a 21st century uh, problem in a way. So there might be other things involved in a way. And uh, some people might be more subject to it. But um, in my experience, a lot of people who have those kind of uh, um, conditions tend to be a little bit depressed, a bit anxious, uh, aching an awful lot and have musculoskeletal problem or have had a musculoskeletal injury and it's not really repairing properly. So they've had to withdraw away from their hobbies and their social engagement and and they sleep an awful lot and then the whole thing tends to spiral a bit out of control basically until they can't really even come out of bed really so a couple of people ended up maybe sleeping 18 or 20 hours a day really so that's 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 because they are they are, they are flat really and and you can look a lot at research uh, with uh, rats or uh, rabbits or different uh, lab animals unfortunately where you remove all the dopamine and they don't even feed themselves they don't mm -hmm. really drink they don't bother even breathing in the end mm -hmm. so they die basically they stop really it completely stops you and that's the problem with too much dreaming so if I was a patient and I came to you Yep. Um, and I know I'm guessing this isn't a particularly popular um, uh, condition that mm -hmm. people come to you with. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I don't know that, but I'm guessing yeah, yeah. Um, if I came to you and I was like, I've got fibromyalgia and mm -hmm. someone has referred me to you and told mm -hmm. told me that, you mm -hmm. know, it's Alexi can tweet that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Where, where do you start? Mm -hmm. Well, you need to ask them a bit uh, their story a bit. 
a little what they what they used to do, what they do now, how they go about doing it, what they think the problem is, what the whole story in a way really, because we need to understand a bit their mode of reality, and that's I think sometimes the difficult part really, and therefore you need to start understanding a bit the the way they go about doing the whole thing really and and whether they're maybe um they are for you to actually try to fix them or whether they are there for you to give them a bit more information in order for them to deal with it better really and Uh, it's a multidisciplinary approach that works very well. So you need to be of uh, psychotherapy, or actually we lack uh, the human-given therapy it, because it's a needs-based type thing. Is that biopsychosocial model? It integrates you into your environment and and your social environment. And um, yeah, maybe diet as well, and maybe sleep hygiene, and all sorts of things really. And then you need to be. You need to be quite motivated, but the problem is you lack quite a lot of motivation, so you rely on others to actually do things for you in a way, which is a bit the difficult part, really. It's it's a bit more psycho-education, a little bit, and mm -hmm. explaining to them what's happening and giving them ideas about and, and and to try to trick their body a little bit so maybe sometime waking up really early in the morning for two or three days to really shorten the amount of sleep you have and you deprive yourself of the sleep that you crave so much is actually and for you to maybe uh, do a bit of stretching and work on your body a bit or some foam rolling or different bits and bobs and then maybe go for a walk a bit and then try to really up your exercise and the pacing part and going back into uh, activating your body basically so you need to be able to activate your body in order to get your mind a bit clearer and you need to be of a goal and setting goals a bit so it's it's complicated and and um It's where it's difficult because um, when you come to see me, um, I don't care about your shit really, in a way, because it's not mine. <laughs> I've got my shit to care for as well, really. I can give you a hand to understand a bit what, how is it, how come you're you're still in the same shit that you are in, in a way, and what is it could you could do to actually do it not that I'm, I don't care in a way I'm, I'm quite sympathetic and I'm full of empathy with people in a way really because I'm a, a therapist really mm. but um, if people who come with fibromyalgia or post-viral syndrome want me to really help them yeah, it's not working it's definitely a path I'm not prepared to actually go with them basically yeah. That's a that's a tricky line, isn't it? So yeah. people wanting you to help them, yeah. Uh, compared to people coming to you to gather some knowledge, some information, mm -hmm. maybe obviously be, be treated if muscles are mm -hmm. whatever to help themselves to help themselves mm. to then go away and help themselves, and that is the ultimate way that you can actually help someone. Mm -hmm. But most people, when they're looking for help, are looking for you to fix everything. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, not everything, but part of it. And or a, la- they, a large part. Yeah, yeah, they want, they want a, a bit of a hand, and sometimes you need a bit to be kick-started a bit and, and things. So I'm not, you know, but yeah, it's, it's sometimes it's quite harsh to be in front of a therapist who doesn't really want to help you because he cannot help you. But uh, in front, being in front of a therapist who want to give you the tools to help yourself is becoming quite an interesting thing because that's the motivation. I've got loads of dopamine. I wake up in the morning, I'm like, yeah, I want the day to, to start, really. I can't wait for the day to start, really. I'm full of it, really. I've got projects, I've got things to do. I've got, moti- I've, I'm s- s- really motivated, really. And, and, but that's my motivation. And I can't, I can share my motivation with others, really. But you can't tap onto my motivation for your benefit, really, because it's quite precious to me, basically. Mm. And you can't get you can't get it like as soon as that as soon as you go, Mm -hmm. then the person's back at square one, if not behind. That's it. That's it. So you create quite a lot of dependence, Mm. and uh, I think a lot of um, uh, people with fibromyalgia are. Are, have asked to get some help and people have agreed to give them some help and they've been let, they feel like they've been let down because nobody can help them. They realize that nobody can help them. I think that's really one of the big things when we look at like on social media and all the like kind of warriors, health warriors, chronic warriors, chronic, chronic warriors or warriors, or I'm not too sure who they are. They tend to really tell you that nobody can help them basically. And I think it's really true. Nobody can help somebody with uh, fibromyalgia. They can help people to help themselves for sure. And and it's quite subtle in a way, but you stopped? Yeah. There's not enough. The fibromyalgia one is a booby trap. It's a difficult one. Um, yeah, it's a tricky one, fibromyalgia, because it's quite popular and, or it's quite common. Mm-hmm. And as you say, people don't seem to understand anything about it. And then, no, 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 they, no, I don't think they don't understand anything about it. They, they, the experience they have of it doesn't. So that's where we've been talking about that quite a fair bit in some podcasts before. We talk about the experiential truth the phenomenological truth and the rational truth. And fibromyalgia is exactly that. There's, the rational truth doesn't match at all the experience people have of the disease. Okay? So the mainstream and a lot of complementary or alternative therapists don't really get the jig. And in that space, that's where dependence can be. That's where you can... Ab- 
manipulate people. That's where you can take them, roll them in a flower a bit, in a way, okay? And you can take them for a ride, in a way, and pretend to be, yeah, you need to get CBT, or CBD, or PDC, or BDC, BT, and saying, and it's gonna be a miracle, and you're gonna be so much better. You need to do Alnemas every morning. And it doesn't work, really. And it's... It's a tricky part. We have to be the the integrity of the therapist is very important, and having a clear speech about the whole lot, and knowing the scope of what you can do and what the patient has to do. The main problem with fibromyalgia patient is they have to do it themselves, and I don't mind giving them a bit of guidance. But if they do not activate themselves, it's not possible. If you got sciatica, I don't mind helping you and stretching the muscle and getting you going a little bit and saying, really, okay, there's no problem. I don't mind being involved in the process at all, really. But almost with fibromyalgia, I have to completely withdraw away myself and not get involved in the whole process, but lay out a bit of a framework that actually open the whole patient to a better health, really. Because the main problem with those people, they come and they are in a completely closed view of their own health really okay nobody can help me nobody will help me ever i'm getting worse and it's not fun at all and i'm really miserable and you know like and it's not working for me really and it's a, a, a spiral and it's um, really a difficult condition that's uh, yeah that's a tricky one but we, we can talk more about it and obviously having people commenting on things and people getting their experience of it because um, only people who know how it feels tend to have a great, um, on, on the, a better understanding of the experience of it really. The problem, the rational part of it is not the, the theory they use and the mainstream way they go to. And the people they've turned to have not actually bridged that gap. And the expectation fulfillment theory of dream and the whole mind-body being together and acting without sleep, I think it's a really interesting thing because it opens people up to the possibility it could be a bit in their way of looking at the world and the way of moving in the world. And it's a bit both. And, and it has to be tackled in many, many, many ways. You have to those people have to reconstruct themselves. And it's a very arduous, uh, process, basically. So it's a very challenging condition, in my opinion. Yeah. It's difficult. On to one that might be a little bit more linear yeah. and <laughs> easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so the next one, another F. Frozen, frozen shoulder mm -hmm. slash shoulder and elbow pain slash mm -hmm. tennis elbow, mm -hmm. lateral epicondylitis arising from associated musculoskeletal conditions of the back and neck, but not isolated occurrences. Mm -hmm. Can I? No, no. I was... I was I was gonna talk a little bit about this about this one, and then I realised that I definitely don't know enough. So, 
Over to you. I don't. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think um, the whole thing about frozen shoulder is a bit of a generic uh, word in a way. It's a bit like arthritis. You need to clarify the whole thing. So there's a restriction in the movement in your shoulder. There's arthritis, osteoarthritis in your shoulder, on your in your AC joint, on your glenohumeral joint. There's certain impingement syndromes into the subacromial space, like a rotator cuff problem. And there's ankylosing capsulitis, which is the typical and only frozen shoulder, in a way. Okay, So it's an inflammatory condition of the where the recess There's three stages. There's a freezing part, there's a frozen part, and there's a defreezing part, which can last three, 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 six, 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 nine, 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 twelve, twelve, twelve. So it can be almost three years with a bit of a really debilitating um, uh, condition because the freezing part is is really painful. So there's an inflammation of the capsule, and there's a recess at the bottom of the glenohumeral joint. Uh, uh, capsule, there's an extra a fold of extra tissue that enables you to actually bring your arm up. So it's in your armpit, that area. And for you to be able to bring your arm up, you need that part of the capsule to be able to, to open up. Okay? Mm. And during the freezing part, there's an inflammatory process that tends to start to reduce the, which is really painful and very inflamed, and it starts to reduce the range of movement of your joint, okay? Up until the whole thing is completely frozen and there's no way you lift your elbow away from your waist. Okay? You can't, you have to, if you want to brush your hair and if you got frozen shoulder, you have to bring your head to your hand. Okay? Because there's no way you bring your elbow forward, backward, or outward. Okay? No way. It's not possible. Because your, your, the recess in your capsule of your glenomer joint is completely stuck. It, 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 it has ankylosed. That's, it has frozen, basically. Okay? Uh, it's not cold at all. It's pretty freaking inflamed. Okay? So it's quite, quite painful. That frozen stage is actually painless. But you don't have any mobility whatsoever. You can't do anything with your arm. Well, you can do things, but you can't lift your elbow. You can't bring your elbow anywhere, okay? So your, your arm is stuck to your waist, basically. And that can last for up to a year, okay? And it could have taken a year to get to that point. Okay. And, uh, and it's the is it the freezing that's quite painful? The freezing part, the initial mm-hmm. part, the inflammatory part is very painful. Mm-hmm. It's properly it requires um, anti-inflammatories or a corticosteroid injection or all those kind of things really in order to really deal with that quite nicely. And then once it's frozen for a year or, or six nine months or six months or three months depending on the case, basically, um, there's a process called the defreezing space part where your range of movement start to increase gently up until you regain, I think, more than 90% of your original range of movement. So you're not left with, it's a self-limiting uh, condition, basically. It's a really quite peculiar thing. 
So there's like uh, conventional and medical intervention. I think uh, corticosteroid um, uh, injection during the freezing part of the uh, stage of it is quite interesting. And then you got MUA, manipulation under anesthetic, when actually when the um, shoulder is completely frozen, you have uh, the orthopedic surgeon who actually anesthetizes you and then actually wrenches wrenches, forces your glenohumeral joint and try to rip a little bit the part of the of the capsule in order to reopen it and increase your range of movement. Okay? Or there's certain techniques with osteopathy where we can do a little it's quite a painful process actually. It's not really the nicest thing. I think if people can wait once Once they're in that freeze, freeze, frozen state, they know it's going to get better at some stage. The whole thing is to the length of time is going to take really. I think most of the people I see with frozen shoulder, with true ankylosing capsulitis, which is frozen shoulder, tend to uh, come when it's really the freezing stage because it's really, really painful, basically. And then they start to get a decrease in the range of movement. Okay. Is there anything you can do at that stage? Yeah, there's a bit of, um, there's different techniques we can use to try to unwind a bit the capsule and decrease a bit the strain there, work with the blood supply to the capsule as well, coming from the neck. And we can work with the diaphragm a bit because we talked about certain part of the rotator cuff and things like that, which tend to be linked with that C5 nerve root into the neck and and it's part of the yeah, rotator cuff innervation and things like that. So there's a few muscles around the area, subscapularis especially, and infraspinatus, your triceps. There's different parts, basically. And there's different nerves that get a bit irritated there, especially your axillary nerve, for example. So, yeah, we can do a bit, but it's disappointing, It's not very often that we do, or that I do. Maybe some of my colleagues are excellent at those kind of conditions, but I, I find it a little bit tricky. It's quite a tricky condition, again, to try to really help. And maybe we could diminish a little bit the, the span of time where the freezing is happening, but it will end up frozen, in my opinion. Yeah. And then, and then it will, and then, and then it will take its time to unfreeze. And it will take its time to unfreeze. And is yeah. that because it's making a but like there is a a fascia change? Like it sounds like there's with the the flap and yeah, whatever yeah. else you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. It's actually a biological change yeah, yeah. that's happened, yeah. and so it needs to go carry on through the process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, we I don't think. I've not read an awful lot lately about the latest research on it and the pathophysiological process that is happening on that tissue and the change of its innervation or whatever, really. So, um, um, yeah, I don't know. Well, well, I know a little bit, but I don't know. It, I don't know all the new research about it in a way. So, possibly, some people know. Maybe acupuncture could be a good thing. Maybe um, shockwave therapy, laser, laser, or all sorts of. There might be some really good 
uh, techniques to try to actually uh, help help those different stages. But it's it's a self-limiting condition. But it's quite debilitating in terms of range of movement, basically, and the use you have of your arm, basically. Yeah. So that's that's the frozen shoulder. Um, I don't really understand the epicondylitis. The lateral epicondylitis or the medial epicondylitis too much. Is it hot? Game. Yeah, so the epicondylitis, um, again, that's the itis part of things. So there's a inflammation of the attachment of the flexor or the extensor uh, muscle of the forearm, which leads to that medial or lateral epicondylitis, basically, and and. Um, is quite an interesting thing because it's where the periosteum, so the, the, the membrane which wraps the bone and provide a lot of the innervation uh, to the bone, the sensory innervation to the bone and the blood supply to it tends to actually blends with the common tendon of attachment of the flexor or the extensors, basically. Okay? So the extensors are going to be on the lateral and the flexors are going to be on the medial epicondyle. Okay? So there's tennis for medial and then there's golfer for lateral, basically. Okay? Um, if I'm correct. Um, So it's an itis again, really. So um, like all itis is an inflammatory process. And like all the problem we are talking about mostly, which have got an inflammatory origin, the fact that it's not actually getting better. So how is it we go about... Uh, helping the patient by um, using different stretches and uh, different techniques in order to uh, diminish the uh, helping them to be able to carry on using their arm without uh, creating more inflammation basically a little so 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 with um, tennis elbow and frozen shoulder they've been put together in that Yeah. And um, it sounds to me like with tennis elbow or golfer's elbow or whatever elbow, that when you start to have a restricted range of motion and experience some pain in that area, then it might be useful to come and see someone like yourself to understand a little bit as to why. And mm -hmm. a lot of the time you talk about, obviously... The muscles that get used a lot in repetitive mm -hmm. sports like those mm -hmm. um, end up becoming very strong mm -hmm. and short. Mm -hmm. and then there's things that you can do to open that up mm -hmm. um, and uh, hopefully get some a, a larger range of motion back. Mm -hmm. And 
so it sounds to me like with tennis elbow, there's a lot you can do mm-hmm. that's preventative mm-hmm. to help mm-hmm. it. Is that not the case with frozen shoulder as well? Mm. No, oh, no. And but it's, is that the case? You've yeah. said a couple of times about proper frozen frozen shoulder. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing a lot of people come to you saying they've got frozen shoulder, oh, yeah, yeah, but, but it's n- it's not. Mm-hmm. And is that the case where when they come to you, mm-hmm. that is the case where they've got mm-hmm. short muscles mm-hmm. that's just re- restricting their range of motion mm-hmm. a lot, and they just need you to. Mm-hmm. So it could have a bit of a de- degenerative change. It could be an impingement uh, syndrome. It could have a calcification in their supraspinatus tendons. It could have all sorts of other things. It could have like a spasm of the sub- subscapularis. It could have all those things. The main thing with those, with those is it's uh, often people who um, use um, power tools for example. So there's quite a lot of vibration and there's quite a lot of uh, fixed position tapping. Or you get people who do quite a lot of repetitive tapping, like typing or things like that, really, or, or, I don't know, like different trades, people. And the whole thing is they use the sports, the tennis or the golf as a way to actually uh, unwind themselves. But, but they tend to carry on using the same muscle groups in a bit of a, a similar fashion. And there's actually vibration. Remember, when you when you hit the ball uh, with tennis, there's actually vibration going and you use the muscle as an extension of the racket, in a way, okay? And the, the, the um, jolt or the tug or the vibration is going to end up at the junction between the muscle and the bone, basically. And that's where it gets inflamed. And then when you use power tools, like a drill all day, and you do holes in walls, and or you use like concrete mixers or bits and bobs or whatever, or circular saws or things like that you tend to use certain muscle you grip certain thing and this is a vibration part of things really okay so a lot of that well, it could be from desk work as well I'm pretty sure but a lot of the time and it could be a traumatic onset so you knock it and then there's a little bit of inflammation that starts but because your activity is such a discrepancy in tension between the flexor and the extension extensors and the way you use the whole thing for your hobby is a bit um, perpetuating the whole inflammatory process basically so again we love it because it's about people and their activity and their management of stress and we talked about cortisol and we talked about chronic conditions because people who've got tennis elbow who is dealt with in uh, two weeks and uh, three weeks is they don't come to see me really mm-hmm. okay we see people who have been in a lot of tennis elbow for the last six months or three months or something like that and it's not getting better and often well they haven't played tennis for a, lo- a long time because they think that playing tennis is a problem or and they are not contemplating maybe changing job or they can't really go to work and therefore they don't have the income and therefore they get stressed about that and therefore it tends to affect the way they actually dream and then the whole thing is loading their autonomic nervous system and their, their adrenal function is getting a bit uh, irritated and therefore they have a depleted uh, amount of cortisol which doesn't tend to deal very well with inflammation so that's what the doctor would do they'll do a cortisone injection because cortisone is a cortisol like substance basically okay so yeah they are interesting things again there's the itis in the in the background we love itises 
because they are, they are what's, what it's on about, basically. Okay. But it's to integrate people with their hobbies and their sports. So it's not tennis who creating the tennis elbow. It's you not mitigating the load the tennis is putting on certain muscle groups that you're actually not dealing with. And that's the whole thing. In order to mitigate the effect the tennis is having on your arm. Because you do and use it that way in the day uh, during your everyday job as well. So it's not your job who's creating the problem, it's you not mitigating the discrepancy in tension between certain muscle groups or and the load that there is and deflecting the load or deflecting the vibration and things. So you got ways to actually do that in with marbles and things. There's lots of quite interesting ways with trigger points and things like that, really. So, yeah, it's always quite an interesting, interesting thing to be an osteopath. It sounds it. Um, headache arising from the neck cervicogenic Mm -hmm. what does that mean to begin with so cervicogenic is uh, well the position of your skull on top of your cervical spine is going to impinge certain structures which tend to supply the sensation coming from your scalp basically okay so often we've talked a bit uh, at one stage about the upper triangle crossed syndrome. We talk about Jonda and Vleming and um, all sorts of people like that who describe certain postural uh, patterns. And uh, uh, the slight uh, the shortened part in the, in the pectoral girdle tends to extend a bit people's neck, basically. And they tend to compress quite a lot of structures at the base of the skull, which tends to supply part of the skull, basically, okay? And that could cause headache, basically. So, because a lot of headache are to do with the trigeminal nerve, which is a cranial nerve, which supplies the meninges. So we talk about internal structure within the, with the wrapping of the brain, Okay. Here we talk about the wrapping of the skull, which is not the same thing. So it's another layer. There's a skull in between, basically. Okay. So all the occipitalis muscle, a lot of all those structure gets a bit involved, the blood supply to it, all the rest. And then we can try to actually have a good effect on those kind of headaches, basically, by working and then trying to work on people's specs and then the shoulders are a bit more open and then the base of the skull tend to open up quite nicely which decreases the pressure on certain structures they tend to innervate the posterior part of your scalp basically if that's one way of proceeding what's another way of proceeding um, you could have a bit more of a direct effect and try to do some suboccipital inhibition and try to traction a bit the space to try to open up the space between the skull and the top vertebrae, basically. But if the shoulders are a bit uh, are a bit uh, closed in the front, well, you can do that for a long time and it can have some relief, but it's going to be quite temporary, basically. What the the second way of proceeding? Yeah. And so it's yeah. better to address the big, strong the big, muscles strong that muscle, muscle your... that's it. Yeah. We tend to uh, shear a bit the suboccipital area. Very interesting. 
So next, joint pains, or uh, there's two here. So joint pains in yep. general. Yeah. Don't know why they didn't just leave it at that. Yeah. Then goes on to say joint pains, including hip and knee pain from osteoarthritis as an uh, adjunct as an adjunct to core OA treatments and exercise. Mm-hmm. What does OA treatments? OA stand means osteoarthritis. Okay, yeah. Oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Or it could be the occipitalo-atlantoid joint between your occiput and your atlas. But that's another story. <laughs> that's what we just talked about. So here it's like knee and hip um, pain, basically, as a consequence to wear and tear, basically. So... Um, Yeah, I think it's again the same thing. We have a decrease in the joint space. We have a shortening of certain muscle groups. And we've got a decrease in actually in function, basically. And um, if we want to have more radiographic evidence of subchondral cysts and osteophytic growth, in a way, so the, the joint tends to lay down a bit more bone on the edge of the joint, which actually can impinge certain structures and diminish the uh, function of the joint. And there's extra cushioning below the cartilage by actually creating cavities in the end of the bone by actually putting uh, venous blood into it so they are called subchondral cysts basically and again well the physical property of fluids is the fact that they are incompressible so the body is trying to contend with the that's two weight-bearing joints. So they're tending to contain with a compressive force and trying to do the best they can to try to uh, spread a bit the load or and deal hydrostatically with a lack of cartilage in the joint, basically. Okay. Um, we tend to uh, stretch muscles and certain muscle groups and chains because the knee, and, uh, be- the knee tends to be between the hip and the ankle and the hip is between the knee and the low back and the pelvis and all those kind of things so uh, we again we can't take the one part in isolation basically and hip pain yeah is interesting but um, integrating the hip within the whole system is quite good it's better maybe so yeah we can work with all that quite nicely apparently You're allowed. I'm, a, I'm allowed. Good. Let me restart that. Now we do, we do one more here. It must be the format. Maybe it's the card. It's so stressful. Okay. General acute and chronic backache, back pain, not arising from injury or accident. Mm. That's interesting. So we talk about 
that's a good thing. So an, an accident or an injury in your back would be actually possibly dealing with a prolapse disc or all those kind of stuff compared to a bit like a persistent pain in your low back is more of a functional and the way you use the wall, the wall part. So yeah, it's quite an interesting, um, interesting concept. And so you wouldn't be able to treat someone who's got a prolapse disc. Apparently not. Um, when actually we've been talking about hydrostatic effect a little bit and the physical property of fluid because the annulus fibrosus, the nucleus pulposus has actually been the nucleus fibrosus of the disc has actually torn and the nucleus pulposus has actually pushed out because of the mechanical part and therefore well there's a decrease in the disc height which leads to facet uh, loading which leads to possibly impingement of if it's a paracentral right or left disc it can impinge on the nerve root into the low back which is shitting painful um, and yeah, um, I thought I could actually do a little bit with that, but maybe I'm not allowed. So um, we will we'll focus with more the persistent part of the back pain. And um, there's always interesting things after the disc or the injury has occurred. And it tends to lead to a change in the curvature of the low back, for example. It uh, leads to maybe an anteversion of the pelvis. It leads to a certain muscle being shortened. It tends to lead to a fibrosity of the deep spinal musculature in the lumbar spine, called the multifidus, for example. So there are trophic changes in the tissue at the back of the back and a shortening of muscle in the front of the back and there's different organs that tend to draw the blood supply to the nervous supply to their blood supply and share it with the musculature in your low back so there's plenty of different routes to access the whole thing and we need to remember the low back is providing people with support as well so a lot of people with chronic or long-standing low back problem tend to maybe have stopped sports or have maybe problems sitting for a long time. So the, the job they are doing is actually quite tricky. So they need to have like maybe stand-up stand desks or um, uh, all the wall, um, how do we call it, um, uh, people who tend to look at your uh, posture at work, all those kind of occupational therapist, a little bit. So you need a few resources from that to have a better su lumbar support, maybe in in your low back when you actually sit on your chair and the height of the screens, all those kind of things, really. But um, a lot of low back problem is uh, is is quite a bit of. Uh, monistic way is a mind-body type uh, problem and um, the way it affects your life tend to make yourself a bit stre more stressed and the more stressed you are the more low back problem you experience basically so to integrate people into their 
uh, within a biopsychosocial model of pain using osteopathic techniques and approach is a really quite effective way of actually treating people and maybe restoring some function and maybe going and carrying on certain hobbies and engaging with the rest of of other humans basically at work and outside of work and with family and things basically so yeah maybe here it's a it's a bit the time to talk about about that interesting concept with uh, um, the somatosensory cortex and the fact that uh, the part in your brain that supplies you the area which you want to move, for example, like your, let's say, hip, we were talking about hip pain earlier on, the part of your brain that actually moves your hip, is the same part of the brain you're going to use to think about moving your hip. And therefore, if you, the movement of your hip is actually painful, when you think about moving your hip, it's actually making it more painful. And tomorrow, because that's usually what you think about a lot of the time, because if today is quite painful, tomorrow might be a bit of a fuck up, and therefore it makes today even worse, in a way. So there's a bit of a vicious cycle just there, which actually sensitizes that part of your brain. And the problem, there's a third component to it because it's a rinse and repeat part when the brain, when it comes to the brain. And as, as much as you use that part of your brain to move the joint and you use that part of the brain to actually think about moving the joint without having to move it physically. You use that same part of the brain to actually contain with a metaphorical pattern that the joint is actually um, mimicking or displaying, basically. So what is it you do with your hip, basically? Or what is it you do with your shoulder? What is it you do with your Achilles heel? What is it you do with your head? What is it you do with your gut? What is it you do with different parts, really? And the metaphorical representation of that, the archetypal, the story behind it, becomes quite interesting. Because as soon as you want to go forward in the world, you need to use your hip, basically. So, and, and if you are a bit stuck, maybe at work, for example, and you're not too sure, you want to change your career, but you're not too sure, all those kind of stuff, you sleep playing Babington, and then you strain your hip, and you irritate it, and by moving it, it's actually a bit painful, then you think about it going to be more painful, so you don't want to go to playing Babington, because it's actually making it worse by actually thinking about moving it, which actually, when moving it, is painful. But nonetheless, uh, it actually can be quite self-limiting. And then the pain goes, and you, re you actually get better quite fast. But on top of it, if you 
carry on, you don't carry on playing, you don't go back to playing Babington quite fast. And on top of it, at work, maybe you're a bit stuck and you feel like you need a career change, but you're not too sure how to move forward um, to achieve that. Well, that part of your brain is going to be even more sensitized and therefore you're less likely to go back to normal activity and you're more likely to have a persistent pain. And I think it's possibly one of the mechanisms that is actually leading to people experiencing persistent pain. So if you wrench, you fall, you wrench your shoulder, for example, and then you don't especially play tennis or babington, therefore you don't, because you play skittles and you're left-handed and it's not your right arm and things like that. So it's actually, you're not going to really irritate that part. And then on top of it, if you're not having to shoulder the rest of the world or so you think, well, actually you're going to heal quite, quite nicely. But if you wrench your shoulder by falling and then, um, There's uh, no compensation. You want to have a lawsuit about the whole lot. You're arm wrestling everybody to try to get it your way. All the rest. And on top of it, you can't really go and play golf because it's irritating your shoulder. So you can't dissipate your uh, thing. And then the whole uh, thing of moving is actually quite painful. You're much more likely for the pain to carry on for a long time because the part of the brain that contends with your shoulder and, and the different ways it's dealt with is uh, being engaged basically. And therefore, you feel it in your shoulder. And that's quite an interesting concept to really... And um, there's loads of, um, like, imaging, neuroimaging, functional MRIs and CT scans and things. And then we can see that the same part of the brain is involved. That thing. So we talk about homunculus. So there's a sensory and a motor homunculus. And it's a little man with like big lips and big eyes and big heads and massive hands and very small hips and knees and big toes, big, big toes and things like that, really. Okay? And there's a sensory one and a, a, a motor one. And it's that representation on the part of the cortex that is going to be uh, used to move the part or to sense the part to actually think about moving it or to contend with the metaphorical part of what the body part means basically to us or to us to the people before us and the people now basically and after us Well, we'll see. Well, we don't have to contend with that. Unless there's a different story and a different archetype about the whole stuff, maybe. But Achilles in the Trojan War had been dipped in the Styx River and he was invincible. And uh, it's until Perseus uh, got to hear that he was actually vulnerable, that he got a poison arrow and managed to uh, uh, get it into his Achilles heel and then he died. So when people have got Achilles tendinitis and it's not getting better, the likelihood of them moving the part is actually quite painful. Thinking about moving the part is actually quite painful and making the pain a bit worse. And I'm pretty sure they know, somebody knows their little secret and they don't know whether they're going to use it to help them or to fuck them up. Because that's what Achilles is on about, basically. So it's so it's such a 
mystical way in some ways or like just I don't know, different way of viewing it always always intrigues me every time you talk about it. But yeah, yeah, I think it opens us up to other possibilities really. And maybe there's something further to look for other than just it's painful. It's painful. Yeah. It must be broke. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, the wall running that is causing it. And I've got no problem else in my life. It's all fine. And so, so running must be bad for humans. Bad, very bad for humans and their ankles and their Achilles heels, especially. So stretching your Achilles heel when it's quite inflamed and saying you miss a bit the point because it's often not really helping too much. But sometimes you're able to contain with the fact that the person who knows your little secret is actually... You're reassured because you thought they knew your secret, but they don't know it. So all of a sudden, that uh, part of your brain doesn't have to be recruited. And actually, the pain in your Achilles heel is actually a bit helped. And therefore, it's kind of starting to ease down a little bit. Because it sometimes gets better and people have got no idea. I don't know. It was much better. I don't know how it happened. I didn't do anything different. Also, we think... Because we don't connect what's happening in our environment and the way we go about it and the whole psychodrama behind it and the whole archetypal, yeah, the play we, we play, basically. The role we play in a big theater, basically. And the comedy or the tragedy, it can be in a way, really. And all the rest, really. I think it's quite an interesting thing and it again is part it quite gr- is good because it integrates us in that biopsychosocial model and of pain really and that's why it's so power, uh, potent really because we can have an extra bit to be able to contain with really and open people to really yeah if you stretch your shin and your quads and you give a bit of a break to your uh, Achilles tendon maybe you can put a bit of anti-inflammatory topical you maybe uh, get a better uh, pair of shoes and a bit of uh, when you go to work you get a bit of a shock absorbing insoles all the rest and maybe if you contend with uh, uh, and you can do a little bit of running and you keep your running going but you stretch nicely when you do it and then you get to that uh, threshold of pain and you tend to contend with the other stuff and you're like oh well yeah definitely that person I think that person knows my secret and I'm not too sure whether they're going to use it against me and the rest really so that's very stressful really when you know somebody knows your weakness and you're not too sure how they're going to use it really basically that's occupying quite a lot of your headspace mm. basically and that headspace is related to your Achilles tendon bizarrely <laughs> somehow <laughs> I wonder why <laughs> so it's a it's like um, so you you go to the um, uh, course um, and you do a bit of an introduction to the human given the uh, uh, approach and one of the model is called the APET model which is, is an activating agent a pattern matching an emotion and a thought and that's this four points of entry to do therapy with people using that model. And when you use CBT, there's only ABC. There's only actually, because B and C are a bit the same, there's an, an A, which is the same as the activating agent, and the C is a bit more the cognitive part, really, basically. Okay? 
So there's only two, which is good, because there's two ways of entering the problem. And uh, the framework that is used with CBT has got only two ways of approaching people, basically. But when you look at the appet, all of a sudden, you got four ways which might be able to cater better for more people and you got a broader way of actually approaching things by looking at the part of the body that you move, looking at the part of the body you think about moving and looking at the part of the, the same part of the brain contending with that story behind it and the whole theater of life. That's Three ways. Three ways, really. And it's pretty interesting. And it makes people think a bit as well. So it means that your body is actually trying to tell you something that is maybe quite useful and maybe something you have to pay attention to, which is maybe not your Achilles heel, but the fact that you need to pay attention to the person who knows your little secret or so you think, really. <laughs> That's maybe more important, really. If you see what I mean. So it's a, that, I see what you mean. That, that, that fixed state of attention a little bit. And we need to enough of pain as a unidimensional problem. It's, it needs to be opened up much more to be able to contend with it like humans, basically. And we're not animals anymore. There's, there's a lot of dimension to us. There's lots of breadth to us. There's lots of mystery to us. There's lots of things we all have to contend with out there, basically. And chaos and booby traps and dragons and all those kind of things are to contend with, to pay attention to. So, yeah, and pain is great for that because it helps us to maybe picture other things and pay attention to other things that need to be paid attention to, really. And all of a sudden, it's the same thing. The element, the physical element, and the uh, uh, thing you have to contend with in your everyday life, with others, is becoming one. And that's a great thing, really. It can inform you on things. <laughs> that's... That could mm. be that could be neat. Mm. Yeah. Would be good. Yeah. Let's end it there. Yeah, mm. perfect. I'm Thank ready. You. I'm ready for sleep. Yeah, good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Alexi. No worries, no worries. Well done.